Hello, and welcome to this week's Shoot the Moon podcast. Broadcasting live and direct from Revenue Rocket World Headquarters in Bloomington, Minnesota. As you know, if you're a regular uh, listener to this podcast, Revenue Rocket is the world's premier M&A and growth strategy um, firm that helps IT services firms. And so we are out here talking to tech-enabled services companies, IT services companies. That's the world we live in. Today with me uh, are my partners, Matt Lockhart and Ryan Barnett. Welcome, gentlemen. Hey, Mike. We do live in that world every single day, and it's a, it's a pretty good world to live in, I think. Ryan, what's going on? What are we talking about today? Yeah, you know, today we are talking about um, something where if you're looking to sell your company, oftentimes uh, we, we do both buy-side advisory uh, for mergers and acquisition as well as sell-side. And when we say buy-side, we mean helping companies buy another firm. And sell-side, it's a, if you're looking to sell your firm, we help represent your firm and find the right buyers. So we have a really unique view of, of seeing kind of both sides of the spectrum. And uh, frankly, we were working with a, a deal this week in which uh, we were representing a buyer and someone on the other side of the, uh, the seller just had a number of surprises in the deal. And, and we wanted to talk to, um, through a few of these surprises to, to help someone else as you may be considering a sale and what to look for. So um, the, again, the M&A is a, one of the most interesting and unnatural acts in business. And the more you can understand to prep yourself for some of those um, surprises, uh, that, that helps. So I want to just kind of dig, dig into uh, a few things. So we'll start it out with just uh, sometimes a, a seller and, and frankly buyers are surprised with the, the, the length of the process in general. And Mike, why don't you get us going? You know, what should what should someone expect when it comes to um, when you're talking about the process and getting it, uh, getting your company sold? Yeah, thanks, Ryan. You know, I think that it's important to understand that um, you know it sort of depends on how you plan to sell it. Um, you know, if you're thinking, hey, we want to go look at a variety of suitors uh, to acquire our business, we like competition. Uh, for our business, we like choices, um, which we think is an excellent way to sell your business. <clears throat> you want to run what's called an M&A process. And in order to do that, uh, you need a competent advisor who's connected to the industry, and, and primarily because you need to be able to facilitate outreach to the right kind of buyers, uh, develop marketing that will pique those buyers' interest, and then be able to have a relationship, hopefully, with those buyers, uh, with your advisor to move deals forward. In um, understanding where, you know, the inside sausage making of how these buyers think uh, is a huge advantage. Otherwise, you can certainly waste and burn a lot of time. Meaning if you're listing your business with, say, a generalist M&A advisor, I think that's better than not listing with an advisor at all. However, they bring a much lower value to the conversation, uh, and that translates into more time. And since the economic relationship with advisors is typically around a retainer plus a success fee, it means it's going to cost you more money. So I think it's important to note that even with a, a competent market-focused um, M&A advisor, that finding the right buyer uh, can take you 
quite a bit of time. And, and typically that amount of time is months of time, not weeks of time. And you want to have an adequate number of choices. And there's, it's very difficult to predict what that length might be. You know, is it three months, four months, five months, six months? Uh, it really depends on a variety of factors, not only about your business and, and the effectiveness of the marketing of your advisor, but also the economy at large in um, generally the size and scope and reach of your business um, and the profitability of your business all sort of play into that uh, equation. Uh, I think once you've found a buyer and let's, you know, assume that, you know, process takes, you know, let's say six months or so, um, it'll take about 90 days to get from that letter of intent to close. Uh, it's not atypical. We find it to be, you know, just to manage expectations to get through all the legal and, and, uh, related, you know, negotiations around not only the business terms, but also the purchase agreement, uh, binding document that that takes about 90 days as well. So hopefully that's helpful, Ryan. I think that, I think you nailed it. The, the timing's probably longer than you think, but, uh, even if you have the right suitor in place to draft agreements and get through it, uh, that's going to take some time. So prepare yourself to, for more than you think, uh, I think is how I I'd perhaps summarize that and having an advisor is, is helpful along the way. We've seen sellers be surprised by the complexity of the process. And when you go through and add everything together, uh, by the time you uh, interview with suitors and, and go through due diligence or the legal paper or things even like a, a lien release, you know, those all are, are small complexities. Matt, uh, I'd love to hear uh, perhaps some thoughts around the complexity of the process and what, what, uh, what advice can you give to a seller who might be wading through this? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of um, our clients are, this is the first time that they've done it, right? And so to the topic where it can be a bit of an eye-opener or a surprise, you know, a seller sort of goes in and again, if they haven't done this before and they're like, well, this, this is my business. I know my business inside and out, but the, the myriad of buyers don't. And kind of some of what leads to the complexity is, is that each buyer is taking a, is, is sort of bringing a different lens to their analysis of the business. And so you, you can't just say, okay, well, every buyer is going to be looking at the same things and thinking the same way because they don't, obviously, right? Um, and so that can lead to some of this complexity related to the information that people are seeing, uh, the, 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 the sort of the level of the detail of the information people are seeking as well as when people are seeking a, a level of detail. Now, this kind of goes back to, you know, where Mike led off of make sure that you've got a competent advisor on, on your team so they can help guide both the buyers as well as guide you as a seller in terms of your expectations and, and when and what information is going to be available. 
during the process. So it can be uh, detailed legal due diligence, contractual diligence related to not just, you know, what contracts are in place, but how those contracts can be survivable or not the level and depth of a relationship that is in place with customers, the sort of historical detail around employees and hiring, and uh, which, which then sort of gets into cultural and leadership aspects, right? I mean, it's, it's, you know, sort of think about if you take a step back and say, okay, Really, what are what is every nook and cranny of my business? Well, um, you know that then sort of you know opens eyes as to uh, the complexity of of what may be asked for. Yeah, and I think that can, can leads into my next question. And buyers or sellers are often surprised by this, but if when you start to look deep, um, a number of buyers, especially if they're um, bank driven will have a quality of earnings. You might hear that as a Q of E. And when you think about that, and Matt, I know you've gone through a lot of these lately. What is a Q of E and, and help sellers understand what they might go through in that process so they're not surprised by it? Yeah. Uh, you know, quality of earnings is basically a thorough analysis that everything, quote unquote, lines up financially from orders, right, contractual orders um, that are in place uh, all the way through a consistent method of uh, collecting, uh, well, billing, and then collecting on a consistent basis, collecting your, you know, your accounts receivable, and then, you know, seeing that come through in, into the bottom line and, and what's in the bank account, right? And um, including then all of your internal costs, right, that that line up accordingly, uh, which then results in uh, the you know, sort of the proof of your net income. Uh, quality of earnings are done by, uh, you know, registered accounting firms. And, you know, think of it in the in the context of an audit, if you will. And so it's 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 basically doing an audit on all aspects of, of your financials. Now, uh, quality of earnings and officially signed off on quality of earnings aren't always uh, part of a process. But if you are uh, working with a financial buyer um, and or a strategic buyer that is backed by um, be it bank financing or external third-party lending, um, then in most cases, a quality of earnings is um, is going to be required. And it it then you know to the preceding question, it can add length to the time. And we've never had a had a problem with any of our clients um, in a successful quality of earnings as part of the process. I think it again speaks to have the right advisor in place with a with a strong financial and due diligence team. But again, uh, sometimes p you know sometimes you know some of our sellers have never even heard of the concept of a quality of earnings, and so I think good awareness there. And then when, you know, you should expect uh, 
a quality of earnings based upon the profile of the seller. That's great. The great, great idea. Sellers really need to be prepared to, to have some open books and, and it's, uh, and expect your, what you're saying is true is uh, to be true. And, uh, it's a, it can be a, a surprise, especially, um, the surprise here I would look for is when you get that initial due diligence list, your, your eyes are going to become wide as saucers. It's, it's, uh, more complex than you think. Um, However, if you work through it diligently and you're, uh, uh, if you're using an advisor, your advisor should really be able to help you tackle, uh, a lot of those issues, uh, in, in order to, to help get to a, a compelling, uh, compelling end. And, uh, as, as Matt mentioned, if you have the, the right advisor on your side, you can sail through those QVs, um, and get, get on to the, uh, the, the purchase agreement. I want to switch gears here a little bit. Mike, I, I You've dealt with this a lot. Um, one of the things that we've seen with sellers uh, is most agreements are going to have a kind of a cash-free, debt-free uh, view to them. Um, Mike, I'd love for you to dig into what that means uh, for sellers and uh, and the concept of having adequate working capital. Um, we, we, we actually see this quite a bit, and I'd love for you to explain, you know, how, how would you – um, make a seller not surprised about uh, these terms. Sure. So cash-free, debt-free does not, you know, what that essentially means is any debt you have on your balance sheet other than trade payables, which are debt, of course, but they're considered to be pursuant to the operation of the business. So let's say you uh, get a invoice from your um uh, you know, internet provider, right? That's considered a trade payable and you owe that money. Right? It's a liability that would show up and be registered on your books. And it, and it may be, um, you know, you don't have to pay it yet, but you're going to put it on the payable side of your ledger. Um, and on the asset side of the ledger, you have AR and cash, right? Um, and so in short, you know, your balance sheet has to balance. It's called a balance sheet for a reason. Um, and you need to have at least enough current assets on the balance sheet to offset the liabilities, which predominantly are made up of payables. Um, any long-term debt or any sort of uh, exceptional uh, debt um, will either need to be transferred to the seller or extinguished as part of the transaction so that you can sell the business unencumbered meaning without any liens. You'll need to have lien releases from your bank. And, you know, oftentimes your bank will file um, uh, a lien uh, on the business to secure their interest, particularly if they're offering a line of credit. So lines of credit, um, uh, loans, uh, SBA loans, um, long-term debt, all need to be either satisfied to have the transaction or satisfied pursuant to the transaction, meaning, based on consideration that's paid to you. Now, just because you get to a cash-free, debt-free uh, deal does not mean that, frankly, you can harvest all the cash. And you do need to make sure that you have enough um, coverage, uh, what well, well, we often use the term coverage ratio, on the working capital um, that will see that you're selling a going concern. So, Pursuant to sort of the normal 
process around selling a business, um, a business needs to have enough working capital in addition to having the balance sheet balance at, you know, current assets equaling current liabilities. Now, what's enough working capital? I would say as a guidepost, it's generally around 30 days of operations, but that number is somewhat negotiable. Um, and it, um, uh, typically depends on the buyer and the seller. As a general rule, you'll need to leave about 30 days of, of working capital in the business in addition to the balance sheet balancing so that you can trade, pay all your trade payables as well as accommodate any unforeseen slow pays that sometimes happen during a transaction. Um, part of the reason you need a competent advisor who has strong due diligence and accounting skills is to help you negotiate the amount of excess working capital. Excess working capital is the amount above and beyond which you um, don't need to operate the business as a going concern. It typically is held in cash, thus the term cash-free, debt-free. And you will be able to harvest it before or as part of the transaction. Um, and so when we say cash free, I think, that, you know, a lot of people have a misinterpretation that that's all cash, no matter what. That's not really the case. It just refers to the excess working capital that is generally held in cash. Hopefully that helps, Ryan. Yeah, it's a it's a complex process, but uh, we seem to get uh, companies blindsided more than we should. And part of this goes into a, a little bit of question here is um it's not always explicitly outlined in a letter of intent. And, and um, Matt, I, you know, I, I start with a little bit of a curveball question here, but I think you're good at answering that is, you know, one thing sellers should not be too surprised about is changes from an LOI to a, a purchase agreement. And, and I'd love for you to kind of dig into that concept a little bit. Uh, you know, I'm not suggesting a, a retrade here, but um the an LOI is a a very specific document, and, and Matt, I'll let you dig into that. Sure. Um, LOI, letter of intent. And by by the way, I, we counsel both buyers and sellers. The most important word in letter of intent is intent, right? So the letter of intent send, uh, sets the general terms. So. What is the enterprise value? Or, you know, we can, and that can be a little bit fungible, right? It could be an enterprise value range. Now, we like to specify the exact enterprise value, um, but it could be a, it could be a range based upon some factors that are, you know, sort of un, undiscoverable until you get into, um, you know, post letter of intent diligence and exclusivity. So the enterprise value uh, and then the structure, quote unquote, structure. Structure is, you know, is there an earnout in place? Is there, um, uh, is there uh, rolling of equity? Uh, is, you know, what are the timelines related to an earnout? Is there a seller note? That's another common aspect of, of structure. Um, and so, you know, I think that where we see uh, changes on a consistent basis and, and one should expect that there's going to be, 
if not change, clarification to the terms that are set forth in a letter of intent um, and that that some may see as change, others may just see as clarification. So um, oftentimes you will see uh, the the same and overall enterprise value being uh, delivered upon. If there is a, a material change in enterprise value, that then you know is considered a retrade. The the term that that Ryan uh, used. So we're not talking about retrade. So same and or you know uh, non-material change to enterprise value, but you may see some changes. Say for example, um, a buyer comes in and says, you know, I want a three-year earnout, and so I'm setting the term for a three-year earnout. Well, through because they want to really you know have the owner on the hook to, you know, to ensure, you know, continued progress of, of the business, of the going concern. Well, in due diligence, they say, well, geez, you know what? I, I, I don't feel as though I need that risk protection in place for three years. And the seller is conveying to me that they really went in with the desire to be done earlier and be out earlier. And so I'm going to accommodate that seller and I'm going to reduce that three-year earnout to an 18-month earnout or a 12-month earnout. Conversely, on the flip side, uh, somebody may say, well, geez, I'm, you know, all I need is a one-year earnout. And then they go in and they say, wow, geez, the seller is key to each and every one of the customer relationships that's in place. I need that that seller around for uh, two years. So there can be applicable changes from an LOI to a purchase agreement that are the you know really the right thing to do for both the buyer and the seller. Um, at, that doesn't you know uh, materially change the structure of the deal, um, but again, it just clarifies you know, uh, what is the right thing to do for the business? Great. Thanks, Matt. I, this, that's really well done. Really well done. Um, I'm going to just tackle one quick issue here, you know, and it, this is a surprise that, that comes up and it's when you go through it, it can be um, almost painful. But if, if there's a, if it's an asset purchase agreement, um, part of that is that uh, your those your employees and your customers will be a part of a new organization and technically um you'll you'll technically terminate your employees and and hire them back in a, in a new company uh and that that can be a surprise in just the technical nature you know you're still going to keep your employees the, you're still going to keep things moving but keep in mind that um, it can be a shock just to see uh, the word termination of employees when uh, oftentimes sellers are looking for a long time legacy here. Uh, I would say it's, it's a formality. Um, and it's something that, uh, is more in the legal parts of the document. And, and the surprise here can be, um, you can take a weight off your back. I'm thinking that it's, this is not a firing of everyone, but instead, in instead a, a, a technicality here, but uh, something just to watch out for. And then I'll wrap, uh, just the last question here before I wrap it up. I'll send this one over to Mike. 
Um, going through this process is hard for a leader. And I think there's a little bit of a surprise on how hard it is to go alone. And I'd love for you to, to unpack that a little bit. I think there's a lot of unknowns and surprises that tend to come um, for most sellers in an M&A transaction. Uh, it's why you need a competent sell-side representative that is going to help you understand those and help work with any buyer in sort of helping you mitigate your risk, um, but also helping you just understand what's normative and what's expected so that a buyer wouldn't take that tumult and take advantage of you. There is a real risk there. Now, I would say in general that almost all deals are fair and get sort of negotiated down the middle of the plate. Um, but without some checks and balances in the in play, either by you being represented and or the buyer being represented uh, or both, um, it can be challenging and difficult. Um, I think the emotion, it's an emotional ride no matter what. Um, and, you know, I can confidently say, having done this three times myself prior to starting Revenue Rocket, that it is an emotional time. And you really need to be able to um, uh, have someone that can uh, you can talk that through with. I think, you know, in some ways, the right advisor is as much, a, you know, a psychologist as they are uh, a deal, you know, a deal team. Uh, to help you get it done, because like it's likely that your business is your single largest asset. Uh, it's likely that you've put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears and time and risk into it over the years, and now's the time for you to monetize that investment. And you want to make sure that, you know, not only do you have your financial um, house in order and that expectations have been set accordingly, but you also want to make sure that you have your head in the right place um, and understanding what is coming next and understanding what the relationship will be moving forward once the deal is done and being able to reconcile sort of where your life is going once you're no longer, you know, own, manage, and control this business um, are all super important aspects to any transaction. And, you know, you want to think through those things before you sign the deal. Um, and I think a competent advisor who's helped lots of uh, business owners kind of get their deal done uh, does that that work with you um, very effectively uh, and will also help shield you from some of the things that, you know, may on the surface look like uh, a buyer is trying to take advantage of you when in reality this is more of a normative part of every transaction that you need some, you know, level setting with, uh, with someone who's seen more than, you know, one deal or a few deals. That's, that's great. That's great. Thanks Matt and Mike for this uh, podcast of us to summarize a few things here. Um, from a timing perspective, having things prepared uh, will help reduce the time of a deal. And we're finding the right buyer may take a little longer than you expect. Um, kind of think months, not weeks. Um, when you think about the complexity of a deal, it's, it is going to be complex, and uh, each buyer may bring a different lens, uh, and each buyer is going to be different. So expect complex complexity throughout that process. 
Um, you, it's likely that you might have a quality of earnings uh, audit will be in, in its intensive uh, and it's uh, expect to have your open books and to, to prove your earnings. Uh, expect to extinguish your debt and have adequate working capital. Um, sellers, you should really be working with an advisor to, to harvest excess working capital and, and make sure that you're able to, to keep as much cash as you can uh, at the at close. Um, during the expect changes between the LOI and the uh, the definitive agreement. So you may may set terms like enterprise value, but keep in mind the first letters of a of a letter of intent are going to be this is non-binding. There certainly will be changes. And then the last thing is that I heard it was um you know expect the process to be a bit lonely and emotionally draining. Uh, however, having the right advisor next to you throughout the process can make it much easier. Uh, with that, I'll turn it over to uh, Matt and Mike for close-up. Matt? Uh, yeah, thanks. Uh, that's a, a funny story, Mike, to your point. You know, sometimes you're, uh, you know, maybe a, a one-part counselor. Um, someone described it as you are, you know, you are one-part bartender, <laughs> one-part therapist, and uh, and then, you know, one-part you know, merger and acquisition advisor, right? So uh, it it's true, you know, that you develop a a, a real close relationship um, with your advisor, and and you know that's actually one of the 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 sort of the 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 greatest things about the role that we get to play is. Um, is developing these relationships and guiding people along. So, uh, you know, and the last thing that I'll say is that um, some of this complexity uh, can be removed if you follow a best practice, right? And that best practice is regardless if you're 10 years away from selling your business, um, do an M&A readiness review. Right. And and understand how the market and external people will look at your business. Right. And 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 the benefits to that are not just about getting ready to sell the business, but it is getting that outside perspective and allowing you to drive your strategy forward, close any gaps, remove any weaknesses enhance the great things that you're doing and aligning to the market. So, um, you know, do an M&A readiness review on a regular basis, be that once every two years or once every three years. Um, and I think that you'll be, uh, I think you'll be surprised and thankful for doing that. So a uh, couple of words of wisdom and over to you, Mike. Thanks, Matt. I couldn't have said it better myself. I think with that, we'll tie a ribbon on it for this week's podcast. Encourage you to tune in next week when we unpack more uh, M&A and growth strategy topics for tech-enabled services companies worldwide. Thanks for tuning in and make it a great week.